0: No man knows, until he has suffered from the night, how sweet and dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. So wrote the Irish novelist Bram Stoker in Dracula, and while he was admittedly talking about a bloody encounter with the undead in a Transylvanian castle, he could in many ways have been talking about the lot of the morning politics newsletter writer. These are, after all, the vampires of the political world. Strange, pale-looking creatures who inhabit a different time zone to the rest of us. They toil away at their desks in the small hours while Westminster sleeps. Then, later, in pre-Covid times anyway, you'd find them stumbling around Portcullis house in a sleep-addled daze amid the bustle of politics by daylight. I wrote one of these daily emails for three very long years And the main thing I remember now is the look of, I'd like to say wonder, more often it was just pity, on people's faces as they came over to chat while I was tapping away on a MacBook in a cafe or a bar inside Parliament. Their question was always the same. When do you sleep? So, here's the thing. It's true that if you write one of these morning emails, you rarely see actual sunlight. That you're on a completely different timetable to your family and friends. That you have no colleagues sat nearby, or, you know, awake, to swap ideas with or run things by before you send your missive out into the world. It's true that you drink way too much coffee, but you're always tired. That you drink way too much booze, but you're always home early. And yes, you never, ever, ever get enough sleep. But trust me, it is worth it. Because in British politics, over the past ten years, the morning newsletter has become the thing that all of Westminster wakes up to. As the author, you're the setter of agendas, the framer of stories, the hub of all gossip. You're read by prime ministers, party leaders, newspaper editors, not to mention thousands more people around the country. And, just as important as any of that, when you boil it all down, you're literally getting paid to send one email
1: a day. And what could be easier than that, right? Right? they're grueling. I mean there's no question. Just getting up at that time of day every day, you know, you would get up at 4:59 and you'd the alarm would go and some morning you think, "Oh my god, why am I doing this?" Recently, I woke up at the weekend and it was half
2: past 9 and I had that moment of waking up where I thought It was a red box day, and I slept through everything, (laughs) and just, like, that moment of sheer horror (laughs) was
3: unbelievable. It was tough going because I'm not a naturally early morning person, There was a relentlessness to it, which meant that even when you were on your days off or on holidays during the political year, you still had to carry on producing the email. And after a while, the sort of sleep deficit, as you will well know, starts to eat at you. Like myself, these poor souls have spent too many of their waking
0: hours writing morning emails. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Jack Blanchard, and I was the founding editor of Politico's London Playbook, a political newsletter that goes out via email to anyone who wants it at about seven o'clock each morning, teeing up the day ahead in British politics. That email, that one single email, dominated my life for three years. It kind of took over everything. It governed when I slept or didn't sleep, when I saw my friends or didn't see them, when I was stressed and when I was not, when I was sober and when I was not. It literally took over my life. It's a bit ridiculous, to be honest. Like, it's only an email. But, after three years, I am officially in recovery. My ace Politico colleagues, led by Alex Wickham, write playbook every morning. I, unlike them, now get up in the morning like a normal human at a normal time. I have breakfast with my wife and my baby daughter all sat around the table. I read Playbook when it arrives in my inbox, just like everyone else. I laugh at the jokes, I hoover up the gossip, I learn what's buried on page 17 of the Daily Mail. Basically, I've rejoined the human race. And yet, when Politico asked me to launch a weekly podcast series about UK politics and life in Westminster, these morning emails seemed like a weirdly appropriate place to start the first season. Partly because I know a lot about morning newsletters and absolutely nothing about podcasts, but also because these things are a phenomenon over the last 10 years or so they've collectively changed Westminster changed the way people who work there start their mornings changed the way they consume the news changed the way they plan the day ahead if you work in Westminster politics and it's a weekday the chances are you've probably already read one or two of these things this very morning they're addictive they feel essential my question is is that a good thing? From Politico, this is the Westminster Insider podcast, and for this first episode of season one, we're looking at morning newsletters and how they've changed British politics and whether they're actually doing more harm than good. And don't worry, this will be the only episode that's me going on and on about my old job. By next week, I will definitely have thought of something much more interesting to talk about. Promise. So the weirdest thing about being the editor of a morning newsletter is that people are constantly telling you about their morning routines unprompted, unsolicited, just wandering around Westminster. Friends, colleagues, contacts, people I'd never even spoken to. They used to come up and tell me exactly how they read the morning email. It was weird. One Tory MP told me how he read playbook in the bath every morning with a cup of tea. Like he literally talked me through the whole routine. Alarm goes off, he sets the bath running, he puts the kettle on, he fetches the phone, he opens the email, he steps into the bath, careful not to get his hands wet. A Westminster political editor told me he always reads playbook with his baby on his knee, shoveling in spoons of baby food with one hand, scrolling through the email with the other. A former cabinet minister took great delight in telling one of my Politico colleagues how he read playbook at the exact same time each day while sat on the toilet. The image kind of flashes before my eyes whenever he's on TV. So habit, it seems, is a powerful thing, especially when you're trying to build a powerful audience. A very senior journalist told me that whenever she goes on holiday, she deletes all her news and social media apps and just flicks through her favourite morning email once a day to keep abreast of what's going on. Boris Johnson has told friends he uses Playbook as an early bird guide to what he's actually meant to be doing that day, whether he's speaking in the Commons or whatever. In fact, sometimes MPs and peers are so enthused by their morning newsletters, they quote from them in Parliament itself. Within days of us launching playbook in 2017, one Tory peer was excitedly reading out birthday greetings to his Labour opponent directly from that morning's email. And who can forget a gleeful David Cameron standing at the dispatch box at PMQs reading from a printout of Times Red Box on the day it carried excruciating details of Jeremy Corbyn's private assessments of his backbench MPs.
3: This is bigger. We've got core support I think you can include me in that lot, uh, very, very strongly. We've got Core Plus, the Chief Whip's being a bit quiet because she's in Hostile.
0: In fact, David Cameron once even turned playbook tipster, texting in to confirm an item about him being spotted at Euro Disney with his kids. Stay off the Jedi burgers, was his sage advice. I asked Cameron's friend, ally and former Chancellor George Osborne, Why on earth senior politicians would be so enamoured with what are, let's face it, pretty low-budget publications compared to breakfast TV shows or morning newspapers, and which count their readership numbers in the tens of thousands rather than the millions?
4: If you're a politician, you've got two audiences. Ultimately, your audience is the millions of voters out there in the country. But on a day-to-day basis, you're in the political market with a few thousand other people at most – in which the value of uh, every cabinet minister and every shadow cabinet minister is going up and down all the time. It's in that Westminster bubble that these internet and daily news sheets have completely changed the way the pace is set, the agenda is set for the political day. When you think back to your time in the cabinet,
0: Chancellor's pretty busy job. Did you have time in the morning to scan through a morning email or two before you got going or while you were going? Well, the uh, newsletter that I read... Was Ben Brogan's. Benedict Brogan was the Daily Telegraph's deputy editor in the early 2010s, and for three years wrote one of Westminster's most fondly remembered morning emails, ably assisted by a series of fine young journalists, including Stephen Bush, who now writes his own excellent
4: morning memos for the New Statesman. As far as I'm concerned, anyway, he was the first person who every day I woke up and there in my inbox on my then BlackBerry was Ben's view of what was going on in the world. And what Ben was really doing was saying to someone like me, you're a busy guy in politics. This is what you need to know this morning. I think the hardiest audience are your members of parliament, your newspaper editors, your sort of senior civil servants, you know, who know politics back to front and don't want to read a kind of outsider's account. They want the insider's account. They want the inside baseball, as they say in the United States. That, to me, speaks to who can do that and who can't. And I would spare your blushes because I think you were one of the people who could do this, Jack. But there are very few people, certainly to my taste, who's been able to nail the email. Lots of publications have tried it. Lots of people have tried it. But to have that kind of knowledge and wit and basically that judgment that these are the stories you should be paying attention to and this is what's going to be causing trouble in the next 24 hours, not everyone has that skill.
0: Osborne was so impressed with the growing influence of Ben Brogan's morning emails that in 2013, he took him along on a government trip to China.
4: But I hope that this visit of mine is about much more than a collection of business deals. Ah, remember the golden age? Because what I really want it to be about... Is strengthening the understanding between our two nations. I took Ben on that trip to China and everyone knew what I was doing every day. The trip got as much attention as a prime ministerial trip would get, which is very unusual for a chancellor. And it was because Ben was telling everyone and everyone was reading it. And that kind of opened my eyes to the way you, you know, as someone in politics, you can use the newsletter to your advantage to a degree. Tell the author of the newsletter, tell the producers of it, I'm doing this today. I'm tipping you off. And you can reach not millions of people, but you can reach the people who immediately matter to you, your colleagues in the cabinet or the shadow cabinet, the members of parliament, the political editors of the newspaper. In a world of politics where most people struggle to be visible, you can make sure you're visible.
0: Brogan, who now runs public affairs for Lloyds Bank, in turn told me that he literally used to target his email at the 8.30am meeting in Downing Street when he knew Cameron and Osborne would be planning their political
3: day. First and foremost, I wanted it to be of a standard that it would be immediately useful and appreciated by those who were political practitioners, so whether MPs, ministers, special advisers, other lobby correspondents. And that's why, for example, we were very specific about when we chose to issue it. We knew that we wanted to get in front of a very particular audience, which in those days was the 8.30 meeting in Number 10, chaired by David Cameron with George Osborne and a whole host of other people involved with them. And we wanted the email to be in their inbox on their Blackberries and iPhones before 8.30 so that it would inform them going into that meeting. I certainly used to get messages from inside the meeting immediately rebuking me for whatever I had put in the top few paragraphs of the email that tried to set the tone for the day so I had a very clear sense that it was consumed in number 10 and more widely Uh, the thing that really made you feel that it had landed and was having an impact was after a time the speed with which I would get reactions from senior players in the Westminster Village who within moments would be sending me messages one way or another to tell me whether they agreed or more often disagreed violently or what I'd got wrong or what bits I had missed. And that became a kind of incredibly useful information loop where, over time, you felt that you were building up a conversation with all kinds of people around Westminster who, in the main, were trying to help me get things right and, at the same time, obviously, to plant their own spin and suggestions into the email. This all feels very familiar to me. This sort of constant feedback loop of political
0: information, gossip, conjecture and spin, with the newsletter writer sat in the middle trying valiantly to make sense of it all for their readers. This was basically my life for 3 years. But is this healthy? Is this actually how journalism should be? Coming up after the break, I'll discuss that with the New York Times media columnist Ben Smith. Spoiler, he says not. I'll also talk you through what a weary newsletter writer's morning actually looks like. And I'll do the one thing you're never, ever meant to do as a journalist, reveal a source. We'll be right back.
5: Hi, this is Freddie from Politico Europe's marketing team. I wanted to make sure you don't miss out on Politico's 22nd EU Studies and Career Fair. It's completely free and taking place virtually on February 4th and 5th. Head to studiesandcareerfair.eu today and discover the leading academic institutions and companies that will be showcasing their academic and professional opportunities in EU affairs. Again, the event is absolutely free, so spread the word or pre-register today to kickstart your EU career. You can find out more and sign up on studiesandcareerfair.eu. We hope you join us on February 4th and 5th. See you soon.
0: The addictive, habitual nature of morning newsletters, and the sorts of people who rely on them for information, means to some extent they can end up helping to shape the way the political narrative unfolds. Political editors, news editors, TV producers, often rely on these emails for planning purposes as they get ready for the coming day. TV pundits sometimes use them too, as cheat sheets as they prepare, bleary-eyed and barely awake, to appear on early morning bulletins. I don't want to go overboard on this, but it does mean that, inevitably, the way they frame the morning stories can have an impact on how journalists go on to cover the day's events. This seems kind of important. It wasn't even a thing in British politics like 15 years ago. But nobody really talks about it. Here's George Osborne again, this time with his newspaper editor's hat on.
4: Well, if you're editing the evening standard, the first thing you do in the morning, and it's pretty early when you start, is you get up and you see what every overnight newspaper has. I found things like Playbook very useful to just bring myself up to speed on everything that's been in the papers. I would also physically look at the newspapers. I think that's still important. Check what's, you know, on the Today program and the like, and then say, and what can we do differently? You know, how can we make our mark today? This idea of
0: morning emails helping to shape the media narrative is one of the key reasons they're so widely read in government and why the savvier politicians and aides are so keen to influence what's written in them. This is Jamie and Joku Goodwin, now the boss of UK Music, who spent the past three years working in government as a special advisor to Cabinet Minister Matt
6: Hancock. In Westminster, when political narrative is so important, it's so vital, having something that you know everyone's reading, but having something that you know is actually not biased, it's not partisan, it's basically about analysis, looking across the piece and working out what's really going on. It's incredibly useful for special advisers, for ministers and for MPs to be able to instantly, every morning, work out, OK, what's going on? Given he was the health secretary's media spad as the pandemic raged through much of
0: 2020, I don't think it's giving away any big secret to say that Jamie was one of the more important sources for my playbook emails last year. Not in terms of him revealing big exclusives about the inner workings of government, but more as a daily point of contact inside the Department of Health who could confirm or deny important stories or points of fact, answer questions about overnight policy changes and explain the thought processes behind each crucial decision. There was a lengthy period at the height of the pandemic's first wave when we were literally speaking or texting every single night.
6: When I first started as a special advisor, a lot of what you're doing is primarily with newspapers, particularly with broadcasters. I think as I came to the end of my time as a special advisor, I was almost spending more and more time speaking to morning emails because that was being seen as where the narrative was and what people needed to be shaping more. That's really
0: interesting. I mean, you know, I think back to last year and the amount of time that you and I, when you were special advisor to Matt Hancock, the amount of time we spent on the phone late at night, every night. I mean, I feel like I knew you better than half members of my own family. (laughs) Is that a common thing with lots of journalists? or is that much more specific to a morning newsletter thing?
6: I think the thing that the morning newsletters have got to their advantage is you're writing them when everyone else is asleep. A day in Westminster is like a battlefield. There's all sorts of things going on. There's mad things flying out there, flying there. And it can often be hard to work out at 11 o'clock, at 2 o'clock, at 5 o'clock, even at kind of 6 or 7 o'clock, where things are actually definitely going to be going. I can't describe how mad, frenzied and chaotic the news media can sometimes seem. Actually, once you get to 11pm, once you get to midnight, the dust seems to have settled. You can see where things are. You can see actually what things are looking like. And it actually makes it much easier to be shaping that sort of narrative, to be explaining what's going on at that time than it would be sometimes throughout the rest of the day. Doing most of your journalism at stupid o'clock in the morning has its downsides,
0: however. In the early days after we launched Playbook, I remember teeing up a big summit of ministers as the main event of the coming day. Sadly, it got cancelled at the 11th hour... And I somehow never got the memo. So Playbook bigged up this meeting excitedly, calling it a showdown summit or whatever, because it's always a showdown summit. And uh yeah, I woke up to missed calls from TV producers asking where the hell all the politicians were. They'd read the email and literally set up cameras outside the door of an empty room. Ugh! I did not make a mistake like that again. But see, the thing about morning emails is there's no big team of producers. There's no office full of senior colleagues. No one to say, hey, I just heard that meeting tomorrow got cancelled because it's 4am when you're writing it. I was lucky in that I had a wonderful editor called Zoya who lives wisely by the beach in Australia and who'd read through my work at a very civilised time of her afternoon before it got sent out and who saved me countless stupid mistakes. But for most of the time, you're pretty much on your own. I had lots of different ways of working, sometimes staying up late or right through the night, sometimes getting up long before the crack of dawn, but none of it gives much opportunity for collaborative effort, and none of it is very good for your health. I spoke to Esther Weber of Times Red Box about what happens when her alarm goes off at 4.50 a.m. each morning.
2: I just go straight into it, so generally I'm writing it in my pyjamas wearing a jumper over the top (laughs) and I'm at the dining table in my living room which is where I work and because it's been quite chilly recently I have like a blanket over me so it's a bit of a Dickensian (laughs) scene and actually I don't usually have tea or breakfast till I've finished
0: Wow, Um, do the whole thing on an empty
2: stomach? Yeah, I know that's fab, I I just prioritise having, like, five minutes extra in bed, um, and then I can sort of relax, and then tea and toast and whatever is, like, my reward after I've sent it out and everything's working. And what I remember really
0: clearly from doing it is, like, you're working so frantically up to the very second it goes out, and then you just sort
2: of go... <sighs> it's gone yeah. Is it like that? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, you can't really relax for a second until... The moment when you've hit that send button and then once you see it land in your inbox, that's the moment when you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Except I always used to get really bad anxiety when it landed. Just
0: because, like, what if everyone just goes, oh, you've spelt the Prime Minister's name wrong at the top? Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> Do you get I those mean... sort of
2: I've completely cocked it up feels? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other day I said that Ian Duncan Smith resigned in 2015 when it was 2016 and only saw it when I had Redbox land in my inbox and obviously had like 1,500 emails about
0: <laughs>
2: Because, yeah, the readers definitely know
0: if you miss something. There are many different approaches to writing a morning email. I found I did my best work late at night The early evening would be spent swapping texts and WhatsApps with sources from inside government and within all the main parties, taking in tips and spin about what was coming the following day. Government press officers would call to tell me why that explosive-looking piece on the front page of The Times definitely isn't a story. Labour staffers would highlight unflattering articles about the government, or, occasionally, about their own leader. Lib Dems would try to get me to write about the latest Lib Dem leadership contest. Good luck with that. Cabinet ministers would WhatsApp extracts from forthcoming speeches or tips about staff they planned to hire. Backbench MPs would flag tedious backbench reports they were about to publish, which even they must have known that nobody would ever read. The best stories came from the sources that used to ring me on their way home from the pub. I'd be pretty much the only journalist still working after last orders for them to speak to, and the conversation used to flow far more merrily than they might have done earlier in the day. After that, the only person I would speak to would be John the Delivery Man, who would drop off a bundle of newspapers, literally hot off the presses, at my door at one in the morning. These weird nocturnal hours are especially unhelpful if part of your job, as mine was, is also to hang around and write about the Westminster social scene, by which I mean a pre-Covid world of horribly crowded rooms full of, well, basically loads and loads of blokes in suits, drinking the proverbial warm white wine and loudly repeating things they've read on Twitter. I've sat in too many uncomfortable corners of too many rubbish parties typing out too many gossipy items on a laptop. Once I even sat in the street in the middle of the February night outside the US Embassy, where they were having a Super Bowl party in the staff bar, but wouldn't let me take my phone or my laptop inside. I've sat on the stage at conference karaoke writing items about the singers and the cocktails they drank. I've filed from Ubers, black cabs, once even a military aircraft scrambling to find a Wi-Fi signal as the plane taxied down the runway, it can be quite a stressful experience. But the deadline is the deadline, and the email has to be sent.
1: You've got to like it. You've got to really enjoy doing it. It's that sense of being the early bird catching the worm, the idea that somehow you're mopping up all that morning's news and you're doing this great service to people by condensing it and spotting the best bits.
0: This is Paul War who wrote one of Westminster's best-read morning memos for a decade, first with Politics Home, then with Huff Post.
1: It's got several functions, you know. At first, it was basically a good way of helping people have a digest for the day, what's coming up. You give them a little summary of what's coming up in Parliament and in politics more generally. You would even have a little section about the things to look out for that day in Parliament, and you'll have, on top of that, a little layer of analysis or sort of it's some kind of insight about what's moving in politics what on
0: earth motivated him to stick with the early starts
1: for so long because it is so personal it's got your byline and it's in their inbox every day. you do build a relationship with people in a way that actually I think has has slightly been lost with the demise of print newspapers in an ironic way. You do build up a rapport with your readers and you rely, as you know, you rely on tips and texts and phone calls off the back of what you've written. And that's, again, the format of the newsletter, I think, is what really is attractive to me, because it's not like a straight news story, it's not like a news feature, it's not even like a daily political column. It's a bit of everything. Each newsletter is different, because each newsletter, when it's done properly, reflects the personality, I think, and the character of the person who's writing it. And I think that's why the tone of someone who's, who's writing it really matters, and that connection with your readers really matters. Paul is in some ways
0: the godfather of Westminster's morning politics scene. When I joined the Press Gallery in 2012, the first piece of advice I got was to sign up for Paul's morning memo, which proved an essential tool for a young journalist trying to find their feet in the Westminster village. Paul had launched the service a couple of years before, inspired by the original Politico playbook emails in Washington, written by legendary DC journo, Mike Allen.
1: I mean, the real godfather for me is Mike Allen's original playbook in the States. Now, it's a very niche market, you know, having a a daily email about American politics. But anyone who read it at the time thought, God, this is great. It saved you so much time. It was quite concise. Always had a bit of insight. So the truth is the morning newsletters we all read in Westminster are basically
0: American-born imports which have infiltrated British politics over the past 10 or 15 years. Kind of like election TV debates or bonkers conspiracy theories or who's that guy? Boris Johnson. Mike Allen was the first journalist hired by the founders of Politico when they set up the firm. The legend goes that Mike used to send an email to his bosses each morning, setting out what to expect in the day ahead. It eventually got forwarded on to one or two senior staffers in the White House, and then to others around Washington. The circle got wider and wider, until eventually a proper subscription list was set up, and Playbook was born. Even before that in DC, as far back as 2002, there was an influential newsletter called The Note, a memo sent out by ABC News political director Mark Halperin. The note was a big deal inside the beltway during the early noughties, pumping out a daily diet of gossip and tittle-tattle to keep the political junkies going. Halperin's own story proved somewhat less savoury. He was dropped by pretty much all the major US networks in 2017 after a slew of dreadful Me Too allegations. But none of this was known publicly at the time.
5: It was the initial sort of insider tip sheet that was very powerful in the kind of, I think in the 2004 campaign, he was an ABC News producer and it was essentially a public version of the note that he'd been sending internally. He was a political director of ABC News. This is Ben Smith,
0: media columnist for the New York Times, speaking to me down a rather wobbly Zoom line from the US.
5: And it was a very, very influential thing that kind of relished its own insideriness and talked about the gang of 500 meaning the sort of 500 political insiders who really ran things and kind of purported to speak for them. And part of its appeal was the sense of kind of hidden knowledge and exclusivity, which also, I think, in retrospect, was part of what was not so great about it. Ben's
0: first big job in DC was actually working for Politico alongside Mike Allen. But in his next role, running BuzzFeed News, he published a series of articles attacking the type of insidery beltway journalism typified by Playbook and The Note. One Piece, by Eve Fairbanks, said the note had ruined her experience as a cub reporter in DC in the early 2000s, making her feel excluded from this supposed inner circle described by Halperin. Ben Smith went further with his own article in 2018, attacking the way politics was portrayed as a simple horse race and laying into what he called the tactical, amoral, insidery, and mostly male dominated political reporting that he saw throughout Washington. Ouch! I have to say, tactical, amoral, insider journalism has been pretty much my raison d'etre for the past three years. And anyone who spent more than five seconds in the parliamentary press gallery will tell you it's so male-dominated that it's a national embarrassment. Here's Ben Smith again.
5: Well, I should say that my first problem with newsletters, and the reason that I never did one, is that they involve waking up early in the morning. Politico's slogan, sort of internally, was, win the morning. And I very quickly realized that my lane was definitely not going to be to win the morning, but that I would try to win like the early afternoon when when kind of office workers were back from lunch. But yeah, my more serious criticism, which I think, I, I don't know, I mean, I was very much part of this world and was as interested in the sort of micro cut and thrust as my sources. And so I'm not trying to kind of exempt myself. But I do think that in retrospect, but really not so much in retrospect as just in terms of what people want now. You just don't have so many people who think politics is a fun sport anymore. And I think there was a period, this a sort of end of history period, where for at least a share of, of Americans and Brits, politics was entertaining, but the stakes didn't feel that high. And so there were a lot of people for, you know, who were rooting for their team, but if their team lost could ultimately kind of take off the scarf and go home and live their lives, that was always... Delusional, I guess. But I think the rise of Trump and of Brexit really removed for people any sense that this was fun, that politics is fun, that it ought to be covered like a sport.
0: And so that sense of a journalist enjoying the game of it and, and keeping you up to speed with the score and, and analyzing the stats and that kind of stuff, that's just not appropriate in a world we live in now.
5: I mean, I'm not trying, I mean, I'm not primarily trying to make an ethical judgment. I think it's repellent to your audience. I also think that there was something particularly to what Mark was doing that implied a kind of secret knowledge in a sense that you couldn't possibly understand what was going on, that really was misleading. Because ultimately the forces moving our politics are actually simpler rather than more complicated than we like to believe.
0: So the criticism is that at their worst, morning newsletters can be exclusionary, elitist, cliquey and amoral about politics to the point of absurdity. You get these ethically dubious feedback loops of politicians and journalists pumping one another with information. They can promote this sort of insideriness which values connections above all else. I'm certain I've been guilty of all these things on occasions. But at their best, I would argue morning emails can do something quite different. Explaining what's really happening inside the political world to insiders and outsiders alike, accurately, in detail and in real time. I remember countless nights covering the Brexit wars in Parliament in 2018 and 19 when I would spend literally hours poring over the minutiae of arcane parliamentary processes and yes, with the help of one or two anonymous insiders so that I could accurately explain to people what was going to happen the following day. At the time it honestly felt like a valuable service.
2: With Red Books we tried to kind of operate on at least Two levels, Esther Weber again, so there's something for insiders and people who know lots about Westminster and maybe work there, but also catering to people who who don't work in Westminster and who genuinely want to understand what's going on, it is a real privilege to be invited into people's inboxes with that kind of direct connection and definitely we see ourselves as providing a service, demystifying what's going on. It's one that's really amazing to be trusted to do. George Osborne has a slightly different but equally important criticism,
0: that the danger for Westminster-obsessed newsletters is they lose sight of the bigger picture.
4: Well, I think ultimately successful politicians break out of the Westminster bubble you know, and have a broader appeal, and have a strong eye on what's moving the country, because ultimately, your price in the Westminster political market is set by your price in the country, if you like. And if anything, you know, the trouble of the newsletters is they sometimes won't spot because it's a day-to-day commentary that okay, they're doing something that's unpopular now but is going to pay off in a year's time or two years' time, not just for the country, but also politically for them. I saw that, you know, in it it my period in office, there were lots of things I did as chancellor. People said, oh, well, that's not very popular, or people don't like that. But, you know, I would like to think anyway, it added up to a credible economic policy and then got us re-elected. Whether or not
0: you agree with Osborne's economics, he surely has a point about the Westminster media bubble and its horribly narrow focus. All I can say is that I did try to get out of London during parliamentary recesses to talk to MPs about what was really troubling people in their constituencies. Still, you'll be amazed to hear this apparent failing has not, in fact, put George Osborne off his lifelong addiction to Westminster news and gossip. Did you read and have you read these because of the jobs that you've done, you know, will a future George Osborne, elderly, no longer part of the Westminster bubble, would you? could you imagine you're still waking up in the morning and reading something like this on your phone or is it purely a functional thing for you?
4: Uh, no, I enjoy, look, I guess, you know, I'm never going to kick the drug of being interested in what's going on in the world and what's going on in Westminster, uh, whatever I do in life. And who knows, maybe maybe I will be back. But I think the what the internet has done And I would say, if I can broaden the conversation a bit from the newsletters to actually things like Twitter, you know, they will bring to my attention kind of really interesting articles in the New Yorker or, you know, some French magazine, which I would never, ever have seen. I think that ability to kind of pick a mix and be your own editor as a consumer of the Internet and a consumer of, Uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. That's the kind of interesting thing. I think that's going to be the challenge for the newsletter. How do you stay current, stay relevant after all this technology is, you know, the format, I guess, is, you know, getting on for over a decade old. What's the new, new thing? These are big,
0: important questions for political media nerds like me. Can a mere email service really keep pace with the relentless march of technology? Will politics newsletters be replaced with something fresher, more dynamic, even more immediate? Will hapless journalists still have to stay up all night, surrounded by piles of actual newspapers to write these things? And wait, did George Osborne just suggest he's considering a political comeback? I don't have answers to any of these questions, I'm afraid. Honestly, I'm just happy to be getting to bed at a normal time. Thanks for listening to episode one of the first season of Westminster Insider. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe if you haven't already. And why not leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts? I'll be back next week with episode two. And in the meantime, if you missed it, you can listen back to our pilot episode from a couple of weeks ago on the history of pandemics and why politicians always seem to make the same mistakes.